You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. As a child, Thomas Edison was told that he was, quote, too stupid to learn anything. Edison continued to go to school, and he was able to complete school. He was able to complete his education. But when he started working, he was fired from his first two jobs because they said that he was not productive enough. Of course, Edison pursued. He kept continuing. He didn't give up. He became an inventor. He went on to create the light bulb. But as he was trying to create the light bulb, he said that he made over 1,000 unsuccessful attempts at creating a light bulb before he finally succeeded, and the rest is history. Now, what if Thomas Edison would have given up after his 100th attempt? What if he had given up after his 800 attempts? What if he had said, okay, I'm going to give this two more tries, and then I'm done? Uh, we would still be in the dark. But, but Thomas Edison didn't give up after 100 times. He didn't give up after 800 times, and, and we're glad about that. He changed history. William Carey is a man known as the father of the modern missionary movement. William Carey in the 18th century, late 18th century, he left for India with a vision to preach the gospel, to translate the Bible, and to bring Christianity to India. So William Carey moved to India and he began his work, and his biggest opponent in his ministry was his wife. His wife was so upset that he had moved her all the way across the world to India that when William Carey would talk to groups of people about Jesus, she would stand behind him and she would shout and say, don't listen to him, he's an idiot and he's a hypocrite. After seven years of ministry in India, William Carey finally succeeded in planting a church. The church consisted of three people. One of them was him, and the other two were two British people who were already Christians who he worked with. So he went there to start churches amongst the Indians and finally succeeded at starting a church, but it was just him and two other British guys. After seven years of missionary activity, uh, Kerry had not led a single Indian person to faith in Jesus Christ. He spent those first seven years working and he would work during the daytime he worked for this company called the British India Company and at night he would stay up late every single night by candlelight he would get out his dictionaries and he would try to translate the Bible into the various Indian languages so so after seven years he had succeeded in creating New Testaments in three Indian languages he had translated them late at night by candlelight word by word through the dictionaries uh, there in India So he finally, you know, saved up the money. He got these three translations of the New Testament. He went and got them published and bound and got several copies made, which was, I mean, a massive cost at that time. And then he started handing out these New Testaments. And as he started handing out these New Testaments, people opened them up and tried to read them, and something happened which surprised William Carey greatly. They, they handed the books right back to him, and they said, this is completely unintelligible, what you've written here. I mean, it's completely useless, like completely worthless. We can't read any of this. It makes no sense. Like, the words make sense, but the grammar, it, it just, you can't even read this. After seven years, all this work, and he had nothing to show for it. Other people who had moved there to work with William Carey in India 
packed up and moved away. But William Carey stayed in India. Perhaps he wasn't even completely sure why he stayed himself. Perhaps he just had nothing to go back to. But he knew that God had called him. And in the following years, William Carey finally did lead his first Indian convert to Jesus. Baptized him, brought him to the church. Now they were four people. And then there was another and another. And by the 10th anniversary of coming to India, there was a church of Indian converts pastored by William Carey. Today, there's a thriving and growing Indian Christian movement in India, somewhere around 50 million people. Now that isn't huge when you consider the population of India, but 50 million people is a lot of people. And most of them, if not many of them, they can be traced back to the missionary efforts of William Carey in bringing the gospel to India. Additionally, William Carey inspired an entire movement of Christian missions which made the 18th century known as the great century of Christian missions. I'm sorry, the 19th century, the 1800s. And it was inspired by this man, William Carey, who left everything and beat his head against the wall, accomplishing nothing for seven years. But he didn't give up and he literally changed the course of history. Now it would seem that there is this quality that, uh, that, ma that is consistent in people who make a difference in history. There, there's this quality which is consistent in people who make a difference in the world, in history, and it's what we might call an indomitable spirit. It's a resolve. It's the rare ability to not be deterred from a path, even in the face of failure, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of discouragement. The reason these stories stand out so much to us, the reason these stories kind of grab our hearts and inspire us is because we live in a culture where people give up. You know that? People give up. People, you know, when it's not easy, when things are hard, when it gets difficult, it's very easy and it's very common for people in our society to give up. Whether it's a job, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a plan, whether it's a dream, we live in a society where it's easy and where it's very common for people to give up when things get hard. And that's why these stories stand out so much to us. That's why they speak to us so much. And one of the characteristics of the early Christians, as we read about them here in the book of Acts, is that they had this indomitable spirit. Here in Acts chapter 5, we're going to see how the Christian church faced persecution from the authorities. There were people who wanted to put an end to Christianity. They wanted to silence it. They wanted to squash it, and they tried to do so by force and by forbidding them to talk anymore about Jesus, by scaring them, by beating them physically, anything they could do to keep them quiet. But as we'll see, the more they did to stop them, the more they found that these Christians had this indomitable spirit. In more than one sense of the word, not only did they have resolve, but quite literally, they had the Holy Spirit, who himself is indomitable indwelling them and empowering them and no matter what anyone has tried to do throughout history God's plans through God's spirit cannot be stopped and they won't be stopped by the schemes of men so the title of today's message is an indomitable spirit having an indomitable spirit is something which is inherent to Christianity do you know that it's something which I believe that you if you are a Christian you can have and if you really understand the gospel I believe you can't help but have an indomitable spirit you, you see, if, if you uh, really understand the gospel, you can't help but have an indomitable spirit. And here in our text, we're going to see the secret of the resolve of these early Christians that allowed them to do what they did in the face of so much opposition and difficulty, in spite of all they faced. And, and we're going to see why we can have that same resolve at the, and that same indomitable spirit. And 
the fact that we can't not have it, actually, if we really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to see in this section. I'm going to give you an outline, then we're going to go through it verse by verse, then we're going to return to our outline. That's how it's going to happen. So the secret to having an indomitable spirit and why the gospel alone can give it to you. First of all, the gospel gives you an understanding of the past. Secondly, it gives you an understanding of the present. And thirdly, it gives you an understanding of the future. And those three things together are the reason why the gospel alone can truly give you an indomitable spirit. So let's go through it verse by verse, then we're going to come back to that outline at the end. Please read with me from Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. In our study last week, we saw how uh, despite all the great things that were happening in the early days of Christianity, the early church wasn't perfect. They had problems, and the example that we saw of that was that there was a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they embezzled some money from the church. But that when their secret was found out, when it became public knowledge, they were so freaked out, they were so scared by this coming to light that they fell over and they died. And so here you can imagine when, when something like that happens, like some people stole some money and then it became public knowledge and then they died, you can imagine people start, you know, getting a little concerned about joining that church, right? And so there were two things which were really key to the reputation of the early Christians in that society. They were known for two things. First of all, they were known for incredible integrity. Like you didn't want to mess with them because you might die. And the second thing they were known for was this incredible sense of power. That word spread, that, that it was a serious thing to be a Christian. And that, you know, there, there was kind of, it had become, it seems like a vogue thing to do, to be part of the Christian movement. Lots of people were coming. Lots of people were interested in this Christian movement. And perhaps not all of them had pure intentions. You see, wherever there's a flock of sheep, it's inevitable that wolves will also kind of gather and kind of scope things out to see what they can do. But with what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, it put the fear of God in people who might have had malintentions towards the church. And yet we read here that at the same time that some people were scared and keeping away from Christianity because of what had happened, we also read that the Christian church grew more than ever. You see, what happened is that those who were sincerely seeking God, they would hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would become believers, and they couldn't help themselves but become part of this Christian movement. Those who had less than pure motivations or who were only coming around because it was a hip thing to do, those people got scared off. And so at this point, the Christian movement, we read that they gathered in this place called Solomon's Portico. Now what that is, is that the Temple Mount was kind of the center of the city of Jerusalem. And there the Temple Mount, you know, and the Temple Courts, there, there were very many different areas. And one of the areas was this place called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. It was a, probably a pretty large raised area. And this is where the Christians would gather to hang out every day. This is where they would meet up, where they'd do Bible study, where they just, it was a gathering place for them. It was known that this is where the Christians met. 
And God was doing powerful things among them and through the apostles. And one of the things that was happening was that sick people were being healed. Just as sick people had been healed by Jesus, now sick people were being healed by the apostles. And one of the things that's important to, to remember about the nature of miracles throughout the Bible is this, that God always does miracles for the purpose of communicating something about himself to people through the miracle. You see, miracles never happen just because, you know, God wanted to do something interesting or really wanted to blow everybody's mind. And miracles uh, are never a given either, right? It's not, there's no formula that you, if you do this or say that or do this in that order or always do this or put your hand here, that you're always going to get a miracle. There's no promise. You see, a miracle is a divine, direct intervention of God into the normal working of things, and it's always for the purpose of communicating something to the people. And you can go down the line and you can look at the different miracles throughout the Bible and through each of them you can see God is communicating something to people about himself or something he wants them to know through it. So the question to ask when a miracle takes place, when you read about a miracle in the Bible too, is what is God communicating through this? In the case of Jesus, the miracles were, were very significant to communicate many things about who he was and why he'd come specifically and particularly that he was the Messiah. And now here are the apostles. So why is it that God is doing miracles and healing through them? What is he wanting to communicate? Now, surely in part, that, I mean, there must be many things. One of them is surely that God is compassionate, that God cares about people who are hurting and who are sick. But I have to say that another one must be that to communicate this fact that just as Jesus healed people while he was on earth, that same Jesus is still at work in the world. And this was the proof of that. People would look at them and say, hey, they're doing the same kinds of things that Jesus did. And the apostles would say, it's not us doing these things, it's Jesus. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And that same Jesus who was healing people a year ago is still actively at work in the world because he was God come to earth, and this is the proof of that. The same things he did then, he's still doing now because he's alive and he's God. And whatever you might have, have thought about him in the past, you can have the opportunity now to change your mind, to change your thinking about him and put your faith in him. And we read that people had this idea that if they could position their sick people in such a way that when Peter walked by and his shadow fell upon them, that they would be healed. Now that's kind of strange, right? Like, what's that all about? Well, well, the text, first of all, the text doesn't actually say that anyone was healed by Peter's shadow. It's kind of implied, but it's not directly said. It, it just says that this was the belief and assumption of some of the people. But let's say we assume that some people were in fact healed as Peter walked by and his shadow fell upon them. It, was it because there was some kind of magical power or some kind of superpower in his shadow? Well, clearly, Probably that's not the case. It wouldn't be because his shadow had any kind of special power. It would rather be, I'll put it this way, because Peter's shadow was for these people a point of contact for the release of their faith. Do you remember that there was a woman in Luke chapter 8, a woman who had internal bleeding going on for a very long time. And in Luke chapter 8, this woman, there's a crowd of people, and they're all kind of, you know, moving and trying to get near Jesus. And this woman had told herself, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, then I will be healed. Now you see, Jesus' garment, the hem of his garment, I mean, it was just a simple piece of cloth. 
It wasn't supercharged. But, but yet, this woman, for her, it was a point of contact. She had said, if only I can touch that, I believe that if I do that, I will be healed. And it was a place, it's something tangible that she could take hold of to release faith in Jesus as her healer. You know, one of the great mysteries that we see throughout Jesus' ministry, throughout the things that he says and does, one of the great mysteries is the role of our faith in partnering with God to see his work accomplished. It is a mystery because we don't know the mechanics of it, and really the mechanics of it aren't even given to us in the Bible. We're just given statements here and there, uh, you know, that God tells us, ask of him, but he tells us, don't just ask, but ask in faith, believing. Believe in his ability, believe in his heart towards you. Believe in his ability to do anything, but you have to believe. Right, to the point where Jesus says things like, do you believe that I can do this? He asks people before he heals them, do you believe? One guy says, I believe a little bit, but help me because I'm struggling with unbelief. Right? Other people, Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. In the Gospel of Mark, there's one place where we read that in one city, Jesus did no miracles because the people did not believe. Now, sometimes God does things whether people believe or not, right? Like, he do it doesn't matter if people have faith or not. God's going to do what he wants. I love this Bible verse, and it says this. God is in heaven, and he does whatever he wants. Right? I love that, right? That's true. God doesn't need our faith in order to do anything. God doesn't have to have us partner with him in order to do what he wants to do. God's in heaven, and he does whatever he wants to do. But here's the thing that God has chosen for partnership with us to be his preferred way of working in the world. And it's a mystery. I mean, how exactly does this interplay work between faith and, and seeing God work and move? We see that expectancy and faith is something which God wants us to have, and it's something which God seems to use. We see it here in these people, that they had expectancy, and they had faith, and they had this expectation, maybe it was a little superstitious, but that if the shadow falls on me, then I'll be healed. It was a point of contact for them to release their faith in Jesus. It was a tangible thing that they could grasp onto. And maybe there's something in your life too, an object, a place, something that God has used in your life as a tangible point of contact with him. I think that God gives us those things because he's gracious. He understands our, our weaknesses, that we need tangible things to hold on to, to help us have unseen faith sometimes, to help us believe. Well, that's what's going on here with Peter and his shadow. Now verse 17, the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and, um, sorry, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Okay, so in Judaism, in that day, you had two major groups. You got your Pharisees and you got your Sadducees. We read, them about, we read about them in different places in the Bible. The Pharisees were the conservatives. They were, you know, theologically conservative. They, they, were, the, they were conservative in almost every way. They took the Bible literally. They tried to live according to it. Honestly, we would have liked the Pharisees. Now, we always use, we use Pharisee almost like as a bad word, like if we want to hurt somebody's feelings, right? You're a Pharisee, man. No, but you know what? The Pharisees are probably the people who we would have gotten along with the best. In fact, they're probably the people who Jesus was 
closest to in his things. Now, oftentimes you find that you argue most with the people that you have most in common with. People who think something completely different, well, who cares what they think, right? But Jesus wanted to correct the Pharisees because they were so close on so many things. They were just really off on the things they were off on, right? But so you got the Pharisees, they were conservatives. We should probably like them more than we tend to like them, is the truth. They took the Bible literally. They tried to live according to it. Now, the Sadducees, they were the liberals in the sense that they didn't believe the Bible was really true. Like, they didn't believe that it should be taken literally. They didn't believe it was totally true per se. Maybe just some guidelines for how to be a nice person and live life, right? Mostly cultural, but nothing much beyond that. You see, the Sadducees didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in life after death. They just believed that you kind of die and then you go back to the dirt at the end, right? They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They were what we would call in our day, they were humanists, right? And so that's why they were called Sadducees. That's at least my theory. Because if you don't have hope beyond this life, there's no hope that God is working in the world. Well, that makes you very sad, you see. You see, that was the kind of a... I saw some of you guys got that. It's a pastor joke. Yep, we only, have a, we only have a handful of those, so I bring them out when I can. Sadducees. I'll probably try and bring that up again later. The Pharisees were the majority, but they were kind of your blue-collar guys. The Sadducees were the minority, but they all held this, uh, they held all the political power. They had all the money. They had all the sway. They were rich and influential, even though they were the minority. So, why were the Sadducees so upset about what the Christians were doing? Well, because more and more people were joining the Christians, they're becoming Christians, and this would weaken their base of authority, their political sway. Another reason was because they didn't like people going around talking about miracles because they didn't believe in miracles, right? And so they're upset. But more than anything, it was probably more about power and control than anything else. Not to mention that the, the message the Christians were preaching was that the Jewish authorities, which is guess who? That's the Sadducees. That the Jewish authorities, God had sent the Messiah to the earth and the Jewish authorities had killed him, right? So that makes the Sadducees feel bad because people are, you know, thinking more and more that they killed the Messiah, which they totally did and it was totally true, but it made them look bad and they didn't like that. And we're going to see that they even say that later on. They say, please stop telling people that we killed the Messiah, right? Verse 19, let's continue reading. It says, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now this is a little bit ironic, isn't it? Right? So you got these Sadducees. They don't believe in angels. And so God, because he's got a sense of humor, what does he do? He says, oh, you don't believe in angels? Well, I'm going to send an angel to let these guys out of prison where you just put them in prison, right? Here, here's these guys with their political power, all their clout. And they get these guys arrested, put them in the public jail. They don't believe that God works today. They don't believe that God answers prayers. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in anything. So God says, okay, fine. I'll send an angel and I'll release them from prison. And so here's what happens in the morning. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, wondering what, would, what this would come to. 
And someone came and told them, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Okay, so here's what happens. They go there in the morning to, you know, they've got their council. They're going to have this meeting. They're going to, you know, yell at them and shout them and tell them to stop talking about Jesus or else. And when they go there, they find that there's nobody in the prison cell. And guess where those guys are? They're in the exact same place where they found them before, right? They're not hiding. They're just in the exact same place. They're in the temple courtyard teaching about Jesus. And here's what happens. Uh, Verse 27, when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. This is their accusation, but this must have been such a wonderful compliment to the early Christians, right? You have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. That is the goal, by the way, of, should be the goal of every Christian group, to fill your city, to fill your region with the teaching of Jesus Christ. That's why we're on the radio. That's why we try to blow up the internet. You can help us do that. Give us some retweets. Give us some shares. We want to fill this city with the message of Jesus Christ. But what a great indictment, and they must have taken it as a great compliment. You filled this city with the teaching of Jesus. He says, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, in more than one way, that was absolutely true. What they mean is, you're blaming us for killing this man. Well, yes, we are, because you did. But here's the other thing. They want to bring his blood upon them in another way that's figurative as well. They want to bring the blood of Jesus. They want these people to also be saved. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles were practicing civil disobedience. They'd been told not to do this, but they keep doing it anyway. Now, it's important to remember that as Christians, God has called us to be the best, the most respectful citizens that we can be. We should love our neighbors. We should love our neighborhoods. We should love our cities. We should abide by the laws of the land. We should pay taxes. We should honor the leaders who are in authority over us because by doing that, we are honoring God. If God wants to remove them, God can remove them. If God wants to get rid of Ananias and Sapphira, it's not hard, right? God can get rid of anybody, and and he has power. And it doesn't please God, it doesn't honor God, if we who bear his name are not, or if we are bad citizens, if we are not good citizens, if we're not good citizens of our community, or our country, or our neighborhoods. God instructs his people to respect the authorities in our lives, at work, in marriage, in church, kids to their parents but of course there are times like we see here when if the authority figures are telling you to do something which is unethical which is sinful or which directly contradicts what God's word has told you to do well then God's authority has to trump the human authority but there's two things that I see here in this that I think are really uh, good examples of how they practice this civil disobedience. First of all, they were completely humble about it, right? They, they weren't in your face. They were not rude. They were very respectful and they were very humble. They said, look, God told us to do this. We're going we're gonna to do it because God told us to. They're not being rude. They're, they're being humble about it. But they're still not going to budge. 
Secondly, they had the word of God to stand on, right? It wasn't just a feeling they had or an inclination they had or some vague notion. They were standing on the word of God with complete humility, choosing to obey God rather than these men. Now let's read what happens in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care that you are about to do, or what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him too. He perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took this advice. So here's this man, Gamaliel, right? And now he is one of the most famous rabbis in all of Jewish history. Like for us, this would be like if we read here that then Abraham Lincoln stood up and said, well, I've got something to say, right? Everybody would listen because that's who this guy was for those people. This guy was a star. He was a hero. He was a national figure of the greatest stature respected by all people. This man Gamaliel, he was the grandson of another famous rabbi named Hillel. Now, Hillel was a very liberal rabbi, whereas Gamaliel was very conservative. Gamaliel wrote a lot of commentaries on the Old Testament scriptures and he taught many students. In fact, one of his most famous students was a man who was almost surely in the room at this time. And there's a few reasons why I believe he was in the room at this time as part of this council. One reason is because they sent everybody outside and somebody somehow told them what was said in the room. Who was this man? His name was Saul of Tarsus. You might know him by his later Christian name, Paul the Apostle. Before Paul the Apostle was a Christian, he was a prominent Jewish figure. He was a member of the council, the Sanhedrin, and he was a student of this most prestigious rabbi, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was given two nicknames in Israel. First of all, he was called Rabon. Rabon is different than rabbi. Rabbi means teacher, and sometimes they would even use another term which would say my teacher, but the term Rabon meant our teacher. He is our teacher. And that, that's kind of like how they used to say that Billy Graham was America's pastor. It's the same kind of sentiment here. Another nickname they gave Gamaliel was they called him the glory of the law. It's quite a nice title. So you'd expect that this guy is going to have some pretty good advice about what to do in the situation. Everybody there expected it too. To take a look though at what Gamaliel says, right? Here's his advice. Let's just wait and see. Let's not do anything time will tell. If we do this, you know, people aren't going to like it. But, and who knows? I mean, maybe we'll even end up fighting against God. Maybe this is from God, he says. He says, a lot of people have come around claiming to be the Messiah, but they all fizzled out with time. Nothing came of them. Don't kill these guys. Don't bother yourselves with that. You don't want to hurt your public image. Just let them go, and, and probably this will fizzle out too. But hey, if it is from God, then you don't want to be found opposing God because you'll surely lose. Now let me ask you, do you think this was good advice? What do you think? Like, like the test of time, right? A wait and see approach. If it's from God, 
you won't be able to stop it. But if it's not from God, it's going to succeed no matter what you do, right? Or, or, or sorry, if it's not from God, then it won't succeed anyway, so what's the point? So was what he said true or was what he said false? Well, the answer is yes, right? It was a little bit true and it was a little bit false. In one way, it was, he was right. In another way, he was wrong, right? He was right in the sense that if God is for something, then nothing you or I can do, nothing anybody can do, can stop it or overcome it. God is in heaven. He does whatever he wants. And wasn't that true in this case here in particular? Yes, right? God promised that he would establish his church, that he would sustain his church as his bride, and that the gates of hell would never overcome it until the great wedding feast, he would bring his bride to the wedding feast in heaven. And so because God was for the movement of Christianity, no plots of men, no amount of persecution could ever destroy it or overcome it. So in one sense, Gamaliel was absolutely right. But in another sense, he was not. Right? In another sense, his advice was very wrong. His, his advice was that, hey, if it's from God, it'll succeed. If it's not from God, it'll fail. The truth is that sometimes things which are very much not from God are very successful, at least in the short term. Right? There are a lot of cults out there that have a lot of members. Does their success mean that what they teach is true or that God supports them? No. Right? We live in a very pragmatic age. Right? We live in an age where the tendency of people is to think if something works, then it must be true. It must be good if it works. If a lot of people are doing it, then it must be good. But we must say as Christians, no, success is not the ultimate measure of truth. You know what I think Gamaliel was more than anything? I think he was a fence sitter. I think that becomes clear the more you think about him. And in this sense, I don't think that Gamaliel was, is a good example for us to follow at all. I don't think his advice was even good advice. His advice was, well, let's just wait and see, right? Let's do nothing. Let's choose nothing. And, uh, you know, let's not decide about these claims about Jesus. Let's choose not to choose, at least for now. Let's continue with the status quo. Maybe someday we'll make a decision one way or the other, but not today. Here's the thing. Gamaliel, though, he had all this evidence. What more evidence do you need to make a decision? He had all the evidence he needed to make a choice for Jesus. He had the life of Jesus. He had Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' resurrection, the miracles of the apostles. He had all this evidence. What more evidence do you need to make a decision about Jesus? He had it all there right before him. But instead of considering the evidence, instead of choosing to go one way or the other, he said, well, let's just wait and see what happens. I'm not going to decide anything today. I'm just going to put off this decision for a later time. You know, there are a lot of people who do that exact same thing in regard to Jesus even today. And maybe you're here today, and maybe that's you. You're a fence sitter. Right? You're like Amelia. You've been presented with the message of the gospel. You've been presented with the evidence of your debt of sin before God and the good news of the love of God for you, which was expressed in the ultimate way that he came to earth. He gave his life for yours so that you could be forgiven, so you could be redeemed. You have the proof of his resurrection. You have the witness of the Holy Spirit drawing you to put your faith in Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus and make him your Lord. But like Gamaliel, you've just been kind of putting it off, right? I'm not going to make a choice. Some, maybe someday, but not today. I don't know. Not, not quite yet. I'm just going to sit on the fence. Now let me ask you, if that's you, what are you waiting for? What, what are you waiting for? What do you, what do you need to make that decision? I believe that you've got everything you need.
to make that decision and that you should make it today. Don't go wasting any more time kind of floating about without purpose or without hope when you know what you need to do. I remember that I was like that. There was a time in my life when I had been presented with the gospel and for several weeks, even months, I just didn't want to take that step. I sat on the fence. I knew what I should do. I knew what God wanted me to do, but I wouldn't do it. Gamaliel is a perfect example of a fence sitter. And here's the sad thing about Gamaliel, though. It seems that he never came down from that fence. Surely, if the great Gamaliel had become a Christian, we would know about it, right? We would have a record of that. That would have been very public. Just like Paul the Apostle, right? It is very public that Saul became Paul. Gamaliel, though, he finished out his days, it would seem, never having made a decision about Jesus, never having turned to Jesus. Perhaps he was concerned about his reputation. I mean, what would people think if someone like him became one of those Jesus freaks? But here's the point with Gamaliel. Not choosing is a choice. You need to know that. You need to know that today. You, you who are on the fence. Not choosing is a choice. Not responding is a response. There is no middle ground by not choosing Jesus. Gamaliel chose to not choose Jesus. The rest is history. The fact is that none of us knows how much time we've got left. And may I encourage you, if you've been sitting on the fence about Christianity, if you've only been kind of halfway in, halfway out, to give your life to Jesus today. Don't make the mistake that Gamaliel made. As brilliant as he was, his choice to not choose Jesus was a choice that he would regret forever. And here's, here's what I want to wrap up. I want to show you what happened next at the end of this chapter because it's quite incredible. So they, it says that they, um, yeah, in verse 39, it says that they told them, they took Gamaliel's advice in verse 40 when they had called in the apostles they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go then they left the presence of the council rejoining or rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus so following Gamaliel's advice the council let the apostles go and now, just so that we don't accidentally skip over it before we move on, notice it says this, before they let them go, they beat them and they threatened them and then they let them go. So these guys just got beat up and they got threatened. Now, let me give you a little bit of detail about this beating. And, and I got a reason for it. It says that they beat them. In some translations, you'll read that it says that they skinned them. Now, here's the reason. is because the way that they would beat them and punish prisoners like this is that they would take this kind of strip of leather, a big strip of leather. And in this strip of leather, they would place, you know, shards of glass, rocks, any kind of sharp thing that they could find. And they would take this piece of leather, they'd take the person's shirt off, and they would hit them with it so that those shards of sharp things would sink into their skin and then they would rip it off and they would hit you on the back at least two times and they'd hit you on the front they do it on your chest and they do it one time now sometimes they did this up to 39 times but they did it at least once for these guys so we know at least once they got hit on the back ripped it off hit on the back again ripped it off hit on the front ripped it off and the, the effect is that it, it just rips your flesh right off and then they let them go. And what did they do afterwards? They went right back out to the same place they had been. 
Now, I know those details are gory, but here's why I want you to see this. I want you to get this image in your head of what these guys must have looked like standing on that city square covered in blood, right? Like they hand them their shirts back. They put on their shirts, and guess what? I mean, they're just so bloody. It's just going to seep right through their shirts. They just got beaten in this terrible way. Their, their shirts are just soaked in blood. And what do they, they could probably barely move, you know, they're probably in pain. And what do they do? They hobble back out with shirts soaked in blood out to the main square and they begin preaching about Jesus. They go right back to the same place, right? The same place where they just got arrested twice and they just got threatened if they do it again, they're going to actually get killed. They aren't hiding, not even a little bit. I mean, how bold is this? I mean, imagine if you're walking down the street one day and some guy's like hobbling up to you and he's covered, he's like wearing a white t-shirt, just blood soaked all over the place. And he says, oh, hey, uh, I have something I'd like to tell you about. I have some good news to share with you about Jesus. And it's like, that's a gospel that's going to change your life you can be one of us and you're like I don't know if I want to even talk to you like get away from me I'm going to cross the street right this must have been quite the scene the more you get the picture the more incredible you realize that this was that these Christians they had an indomitable spirit the authorities threatened them they beat them they imprisoned them they ripped their skin off but nothing could keep them down bloody and battered they head right back out into the temple courts undeterred what was it about these Christians that made them like this? What gives a person this kind of resolve? Either they're completely insane or they have some kind of conviction so that's so strong, so powerful that it's not even shaken by beating or threats or imprisonment. And here's what it is. It was the gospel. That's what it was. You see, when you really understand the gospel, it gives you an understanding of the past, an understanding of your present, and an understanding of the future that changes everything. One of my favorite parts of this whole section is in verse 19. It moves my heart. I hope it moves yours. Notice the angel opens up the prison door and lets them out. And what does he say? He says, I want you to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people. What? All the words of this life. Do you know that that's what the gospel is? It is all the words of this life. It is all the words of this life. It's not only the message of how to have eternal life. It is all the words of this life, past, present, and future. The gospel is all the words of this life because it speaks to all of your hopes, all of your fears, all of your dreams, all of your aspirations, past, present, and future. It shows you that Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. The secret to having an indomitable spirit. I'm going to go through this quickly and we're done. The reason why the gospel alone can give you an indomitable spirit, here's why. Number one, it gives you an understanding of the past. In this first section we looked at, if you break it into sections there from verse uh, 12 in chapter 5, we saw how people were being healed by God through the apostles. Now for the apostles, I'm sure in one sense this was incredible because God was moving in a powerful way through them. But in another sense, I'm sure it, was, it wasn't something they were totally unused to because they had been for years seeing sick people get healed by Jesus and now they continue to see sick people getting healed by Jesus. The miraculous was something that they had seen and experienced. But the difference now, what's the difference between when Jesus was with them and now? The difference is now the apostles understand the gospel and the gospel gives them a new framework, a new understanding of why this is happening, the significance of this. You see, for the Christians, when they understood the gospel, we see in their writings that they understood that it was because, the reason for healing 
and restoration. It was all rooted in what Jesus had done on the cross. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Peter quotes from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 53, and he says, regarding the forgiveness of sins, he says, by his stripes, by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. Now, both Isaiah and Peter, when they speak of healing, they have primarily in mind, not primarily physical healing, but spiritual healing. That more than anything, that we need our sins to be wiped away, to be made whole and right before God. And Isaiah prophesied it, and Peter recognized it, that it was by Jesus' stripes, his suffering and his death on the cross, his substitutionary suffering for our sins, that we can be healed. And any physical healing that takes place, it's a glimmer, it's a preview, it's a preview of the fullness of healing and restoration that awaits us in heaven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross when he bore our iniquities. And therefore healing, ultimate forever healing, is available to all people through Jesus Christ. And in that place, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering because of what Jesus did when he bore our iniquities and by his stripes we are healed. These Christians, why did they have an indomitable spirit? Because they understood the past. They understood the gospel, that what Jesus had done for them, that he bore our sin, our iniquities upon himself. He took upon our death upon himself so that we could live. Our infirmities, by his stripes we are healed. Everything that needed to be done, it was finished by Jesus. He said, it is finished. And therefore, we don't have to be captives to our past or to our sins. If you have this understanding of the past, you can have an indomitable spirit that because of Jesus, you are set free, you are healed forever. But here's the other thing. How do you have an indomitable spirit in the present? By understanding the gospel, of course. You see, the first time the apostles got arrested, I just read to you that, you know, the angel comes, he opens the door, he sets them free, says, go out to the temple and preach all the words of this life, the gospel message. And he says, why are you, basically he says, he's giving them an understanding of why he's setting them free. You see, there were many times that they were arrested, and, and for each of these men, almost all of them, there were times when they didn't get set free miraculously. But this time, they did get set free miraculously, and the angel tells them why. Here's why, because I have a purpose with it. I want you to go and do something. I have a mission for you. They were set free for a purpose. That's their understanding of the present. The purpose was so that they could do the work of God that he called them to. In other words, God didn't set them free primarily for their comfort because prison's a bummer. No, it was, he set them free for a reason, for a purpose, for a mission. Do you know that that same thing is true for you? God delivered them for a purpose and for you too. God has delivered you for a purpose. God hasn't just saved you for your own sake. God has saved you for a purpose. The message of the gospel is that God has set you free, but not just for your own sake, for a purpose. God hasn't just saved you from things. God has saved you unto something, unto a whole new life, a whole new purpose, and a mission. And it's that understanding of your present that gives you an indomitable spirit when you understand that God has saved you for a purpose. He has saved you and he has a purpose with your life. Do you know that? Do you understand that? That in all of God's plans for the world, Every big thing, eight, mil, 8 billion people out there, he has a purpose for you in that plan. And you get to live that out. And the last thing I'll say here is an understanding of the future. That's the last thing the gospel does to give you an indomitable spirit. 
How could it be that these apostles, after having been beaten, having been threatened with death, how can they just head right back into the city square and continue to do what they were just told not to do with a threat of death? It was because they had an understanding of the future which only comes from the gospel. They had an understanding of the future that enabled them to say things like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, I can't lose. Win-win. You see, these are people who saw Jesus brutally murdered and then three days later they touched him, they hugged him, and they ate with him. These are people who saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And I'll tell you what, when you see stuff like that happen, it gives you a whole new perspective on life. You see, if this life is all there is, then let me ask you this. Wouldn't it be just a waste of time? Wouldn't it be a waste of time doing anything hard? I mean, anything, anything hard would just be kind of a waste of time if this life is all there is and you don't know how much time you got. Anything difficult, anything that's not fun, you should probably just quit doing it now because you've only got all the short time to live, right? But, but if there's more than that to this life, if there's more than just this life, it, then this life, it, it changes. What it is for you changes. It's not all that you've got. It's just, really, it's like a drop of water in a bucket. It's like a penny in your pocket, right? And, and when you view your life that way, then you can spend that penny on something that really matters because you know that pretty soon you're going to have rooms and crates full of pennies to spend on whatever you see when you start realizing that your life is short and that after this you have the hope of eternity then, then guess what you get to spend your life no longer selfishly spending it on your own fulfillment trying to squeeze everything you can out of that penny no guess what you get to spend it and be spent on things that have implications and effects that last forever that's what we see here was true of the Christians, not only here, but for, for centuries. When you really understand the gospel, it changes your perspective on your life and your possessions. The promise of eternal life sets you free from needing to strive and hold on desperately to your life. You can actually give up your life. You can say, God, you've given me eternal life, a million trillion years, so I'm going to give you this, this last 50 or 60 or 70 years that I've got left. It's all yours. You can have it. And you can use it as you will. I'm all yours because I know that this life is just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity, so I give it to you. And the irony is, when you do that, that's when you truly begin to live. When you have that attitude, when you have that perspective, then you will have an indomitable soul. That was what enabled these early Christians to live their lives with so much resolve. To look pain and suffering and hardship in the face and not even flinch. The ability to not bend or even break under the influence of threats and beatings because they understood the past, that Jesus had died for them and by his stripes they were healed. They understood the present, that Jesus had set them free for a purpose and they understood their future, that eternal life awaited them and that they put, that put everything in perspective for them. Nothing could keep them down. They had an indomitable spirit and inasmuch as you will take hold of the gospel, you cannot help but to have an indomitable spirit as well. It comes from understanding the past, what Jesus has done for you, understanding the present, that God saved you for a purpose, and understanding the future, that if you are in Christ, eternity awaits you. Therefore, you can live free from fear. You can live for God's glory and purposes, and you can courageously do the will of God with unshakable resolve. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we see the boldness of the apostles and we cannot help but be inspired by it and encouraged and challenged by it, Lord.
And we pray that you would help us to take hold of that gospel that they considered themselves to be so precious. Lord, that it would be precious to us and that we would live in every implication of it, that we would live it out and that we would experience these same effects in our lives. Lord, thank you for the past. Thank you for what you did for us on the cross. And thank you for the present, Lord, that you have a purpose and a plan with our lives, that you've saved us for a reason. And thirdly, Lord, thank you for the glorious future that we have in you. Thank you for the gospel. May it encourage us and make us bold for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.